we're going to start in Mark chapter 7 this morning, which tells us about some travels of Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse 31. It says, He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. That's up in the north of the ancient land of Palestine, modern-day Lebanon, basically. Uh, These ancient cities were... uh, important in the Old Testament as trade centers and even in the time of Jesus. And he crosses, it says, to the Sea of Galilee to a region called the Decapolis, which you can probably work out means the Ten City area. It was a Gentile territory. It was a region that a lot of Jews would not necessarily want to go to because they thought it was unclean, because it was predominantly a Gentile region. It says in verse 32, And they brought to him a man who was deaf, and my translation says, and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. The reason that I ask you to mark Isaiah chapter 35 is because the word that is used here in my translation that he had a speech impediment is found only one other time in the Bible. And it's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of Isaiah 35. It's found here in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, how it says it here, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When this passage in Isaiah describes God coming to save His people, to break into this world and put things right that have gone wrong, among the miracles that it mentions is helping those who cannot hear be able to hear and helping those who have been unable to speak to be able to speak. And that very same word now is used here in Mark chapter 7 almost as if to say what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 7 is the fulfillment of this, this great vision that Isaiah had of what it will look like when God's Messiah comes to make things right. Jesus is coming to help lame people walk and deaf people to hear and those who cannot speak be able to sing His praises. But what I especially want you to think about is this curious detail in verse 33, which says that when Jesus took this man aside, that he put his fingers into his ears. That's what I want you to think about. Because I don't know about you, but to be just quite blunt about it, that's a little gross to me. <laughs> my, uh, my poor wife, when we got married, she, we uh, I've always like to wrestle around with my friends. And so when my poor wife and I got married, she had to bear the brunt of my violent tendencies all by herself. And one day I was really giving her a hard time and and uh, teasing her, pestering her. And by accident, her finger slipped into my ear and I immediately recoiled. And she realized, aha, now I have the antidote. Anytime my buffoon of a husband starts to really tease me and wrestle me around, all I got to do is... Stick my finger in his ear and it'll gross him out and he'll stop. I don't know how many of you have the same uh, instinctive reaction to that. 
But it says here in Mark chapter 7 that when Jesus healed this man, that he put his fingers into his ears and, after spitting, touched his tongue. Now this is all the more unusual because we know for a fact that Jesus did not have to physically touch people in order to heal them. There are even stories in the Gospels where Jesus is not even personally present. He's miles away from people when he heals them. And yet here in Mark, it gives us these unusual details of very up close and personal contact that Jesus has with this man who was deaf and unable to speak. Now, part of this, I think, may be for the same reason that you and I, whenever we try to comfort someone, have a tendency to reach out and touch them, to put a hand on on the shoulder, to, to give someone a hug. Because there's just a part of us, I think, that in compassion and pity for those who are suffering, want to reach out and, and touch people. And certainly in the Gospel of Mark, we see many examples of Jesus doing this, this very thing. I'm flipping back to chapter 1, where it tells us about the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever. It says that when Jesus came to her, Mark 1.31, that he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. A few verses later, here's another even more uh, dramatic example, I think, because of the stigma of leprosy. You know that in the religion of Israel, leprosy caused someone literally to be shunned as an outcast. And yet it says in Mark 1.40, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. You also see another example in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus actually touches a dead body. So if you think under the law of Moses, the various conditions that can make someone unclean, certainly various physical maladies could cause someone to be unclean, like, for example, leprosy. But there's no greater source of ritual impurity than death itself. And yet when Jesus goes to the house of Jairus and sees his daughter who is dead, the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 5 and verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. So my point to you in showing you all of these examples where Jesus would actually touch people, even though we know it wasn't absolutely necessary, but he would still touch people. Even people who had gross conditions like leprosy, even people who were dead, even touch people in a way that we might find highly invasive in our way of thinking. Jesus would touch him. Why would he do that? I think at a minimum, what all of these examples show us is that Jesus was very much a hands-on healer. He wasn't someone who just sent other people to do his work for him, although he would send the apostles out, of course, to do their own miracles. But Jesus was a hands-on healer. In our Vernacular, we have a phrase that we use to describe a person who isn't afraid to do unpleasant work. What we say is they are willing to get their hands dirty. And I would suggest for you that Jesus, in all of these examples, is showing us a willingness to get his hands dirty. I obviously don't mean by that any kind of moral 
impurity. Of course, Jesus was sinless. But I mean that to serve and help people in a grimy, gritty, sinful world, in order to do that with the kind of personal, intimate, caring concern that Jesus had. To be a hands-on healer meant that Jesus was going to get his hands dirty. How many of y'all remember that the TV show Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? That was like the first nature show. It was on TV when I was a little child. And for those of you who are too young to know what I'm talking about, this show uh, featured a very old man whose name was Marlon Perkins, who was kind of the narrator, and then his assistant, a much younger man named Jim Fowler. And what would happen is they would go out and explore some area and see some animal, but Marlon Perkins would stay behind and send poor Jim Fowler out to go, you know, wrestle the crocodile or, you know, put a hippopotamus in a headlock, you know. And then it was just always funny to see poor Jim have to go traipsing into the water or the mud or whatever. He had to do the dirty work. Marlon Perkins never did the dirty work. He stayed back in safety and in cleanliness. I'm just wanting you to see that that's not what Jesus did when he came in his ministry. That Jesus loved people and had personal commitment to people such that he was willing to get his hands dirty. Now, this is not a surprise to us as Christians because of what we believe about Jesus. Namely, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And all through the Bible, we see picture after picture of our great God who is willing to get his hands dirty. Meaning... God who loves His creation so much that even when we by our sinfulness have perverted it and marred it and destroyed it, He is willing nevertheless to love us and reach out to us and work in us and through us to make things right. Just think about how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, God creates human beings in His image after His likeness like in the ancient world when a king would erect a statue to represent his authority, to remind people that he has dominion. And God creates human beings to be his likeness, to represent his authority. Genesis even tells us that because it says, let us make man in our image after his likeness and he will have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and so forth. So we've been delegated authority by God over His creation as He has given it to us to be His likeness, His image bearers. But rather than submit to the authority of God, we subverted the authority of God. And instead of God, human beings, and animals, an animal, the serpent, deceives human beings who in turn reject the will of God. And God's entire order of authority is turned upside down. And the result of that is sin and death and the curse. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, sin has become so pervasive and sin has become so complete that the Bible says the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And yet in the course of this process, God doesn't just say, okay, let's just bring the whole program to a halt and shut it down. We're over here across from some of these studios. You know, they'll have some of these projects that start off and then they just aren't going anywhere and so they just say, shut it down and they just bring the whole production to a halt. That is not what God did. Instead, what God chose to do is to work in and through sinful people and circumstances to make things right. 
But you know what that's going to mean? It's going to mean that sometimes in the Bible there are stories of the work of God that are going to look messy because of what He's trying to do to save His creation. The flood would be a classic example of this. There's no way to look at the story of the flood other than to see it as a brutal and ugly story of judgment. I I have a friend who is not a believer that I've met through barbershop. It's one of the main reasons I got into the hobby was to have a chance to get involved with other people from different backgrounds. And he came up to me one time and said, You know, I read this article the other day that said in the Bible... Uh, Satan only kills like eight people, but God is said to have killed millions of people. So I said, well, it seems to me the lesson is don't mess with God, right? I mean, he's he's the judge. He's all powerful. But I mean, there's a more reflective response to make to that. Sometimes there are things that take place that from one point of view do seem brutal and harsh. But from a different point of view, you come to see our acts of love and are necessary. So I'll illustrate it like this. My wife has cancer. And two years ago, when we initially found out she had cancer, she was given radiation treatment and chemotherapy and surgery. Under normal circumstances, to direct high-powered radiation at someone or to inject toxic chemicals into their body, or to plunge a knife into them, will be cruel and horrific. You would say, stop, you shouldn't do that. But on the other hand, if you love that person and you are trying to save them, sometimes you must take extreme measures, get your hands dirty, because you love and care for them so much, you've got to take those radical and extreme steps. And here's the thing, for those of us who are Christians, our fundamental belief about who God is and the ultimate revelation of who God is is in the person of Jesus Christ. Such that our default view of everything we read in Scripture is going to be understood through Jesus. So when I read stories like the flood or stories like Sodom and Gomorrah or stories like the slaughter of the Canaanites, my default posture is just going to be much different than that of my atheist friend. My default posture as one who believes the fullest, richest expression of who God is is in Jesus Christ is going to say, wow, if that's what the God who loves me and loves creation so much that He came as Jesus Christ to save us, if that's what had to be done to remedy matters, things must have been so terrible and horrible. But it's not going to be to automatically assume that God is just some vengeful bully or tyrant who just capriciously slaughters people. See what a difference your outlook and perspective makes. The point I'm wanting all of us to understand is that stories that look messy in the Bible are messy for a reason. Because the God who loves His creation has determined to work through these messes to bring things to the way that He wants them to be. And sometimes... That story is just going to be messy. Now, the story of the flood is also a story of grace. I'm turning back to Genesis 6 and would just remind you of verse 8. Even in the midst of the horror of this story, the Bible tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
There is certainly grace in this story. And after the story of the flood in chapter 9, we have a fresh start. In fact, it echoes the language of Genesis 1. As the Lord tells Noah and his family to go and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we think finally we found a hero who's going to help turn things around. And now this story can get back on track. And then what's the very first thing that happens? Noah plants a vineyard, which may seem innocuous enough, except we remember how the wheels fell off to begin with. It was in a garden and it was eating something, right? So Noah plants a vineyard, and you remember this story? It's an ugly story. He gets falling down, slobbering drunk. And his son, Ham, sees him. And if you remember the details of this story, you may also be aware that there have been a lot of details or a lot of suggestions as to exactly what Ham did in this story. In Genesis 9.22, he saw the nakedness of his father. I've read a lot of suggestions that I think are outlandish, and I think a lot of them are outlandish because they ignore the context of this passage. Genesis is written by Moses to Israel. As Israel is about to go into the land of Canaan to subjugate it. And if you'll notice here, Ham is identified in verse 22 as the father of Canaan. And when the curse is given to him in Genesis 9.25, it's not cursed be Ham, it's cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So the point of this story, whatever the specifics of what are taking place, really has to do for Israel to understand their destiny to go and to conquer the land of Canaan. But my point here is this. You would think Noah's going to be a great hero. He's not. If there's any hero of the flood story, it's going to be the same hero of any other story in the Bible, which is going to be God. Noah is flawed and sinful, but it just illustrates the point I'm making to you. Because God has the desire to save His creation He loves so much, He is willing to work through sinful circumstances and with sinful people in order to bring that about. And we see this time and again in other messy stories in the Bible. The next great figure, Genesis 12, is Abraham, who two different times lies about the identity of his wife in order to save himself and get out of trouble. He has a grandson named Jacob, whose name basically means cheater or deceiver, and whose life bears out the duplicitous character indicated by his name. He has a son named Judah, the one through whom someday the Messiah would come. You want to see another ugly story of the Bible? Just flip over to Genesis chapter 38. The Bible tells us a story about this man Judah. He has three sons. The first one is married to a woman named Tamar, and he dies. And according to the custom of the day now, his second son should be with Tamar and give her children so the family line can continue. And he refuses to do so, so he dies. And then Judah refuses to give son number three to her. Later his wife dies, and he goes to where you could find prostitutes. Yeah, prostitutes. And Tamar decides to disguise herself as one, and her father-in-law engages her services... 
she, he doesn't know that it's her, gives her some tokens and pledge that he will give her payment. Later he can't find her, so he thinks, well, okay, I guess I've lost those tokens. Then finds out that Tamar is pregnant, and when he finds out Tamar is pregnant, not knowing that he's the father, he says, here's what we ought to do to her, let's burn her. What a great father-in-law this guy is. And then she produces those tokens which prove that he, in fact, was the one who was the father. Now, i got to tell you something. When I was a kid, I had a Bible study book called Richard's Bible Studies for uh, Bible Stories for Children. This one didn't make it in that one. Right? It's just not in there, all right? Because it is a sordid, ugly, horrible story. But I'll tell you whose book it did make it in. Tamar has two sons by Judah, and one of them is named Perez. And if you flip to Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, among many other people of questionable character, people like Rahab, people like Bathsheba, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. It wasn't in my Bible story book as a child, but it's in the story of Jesus' family tree. Why? Because God is willing to work through the worst circumstances and through deeply flawed people to bring about His purposes. How many more examples can we think of? There's lustful Samson. There is the adulterous David. There is impetuous Peter. On and on we can make this very simple point. God loves us so much, loves his creation so much, that in order to deal with the ugliness of sin, he intends to work through deeply compromised people, through horrible situations, to get his hands dirty... To make things right, just as surely as Jesus put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man or touched the tongue of a man who could not speak. What's the other option? Well, God really shouldn't have anything to do with sinful people. Really? Then who's God going to have anything to do with? Well, yeah, but God should send other people to do the dirty work. He shouldn't sully his hands with that. Who else is going to do the dirty work? Who else was stepping up to the plate to say, oh yeah, no, nobody else was. Only God, of the God of pure, holy love, was the one willing to do what these stories are showing us. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God commends His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that brings us to the reason why we're here today, which is the cross. I've been making the point to you that in order for the God of intimate love and care to deal with sin, it meant getting His hands dirty, working through ugly circumstances and sinful people. That comes to a head in the story of the cross. Think about all of the people that God worked through in the crucifixion. He worked through the corrupt Jewish leadership, envious of Jesus' popularity. He worked through Judas, who was overcome by greed in order to betray Jesus. 
He worked through Pilate, a politician like any other, who was consumed with his own you know, craven sense of self-interest, such that if keeping his job meant sentencing an innocent man to death, so much the worse for that man. The soldiers who were brutal and cruel, who took pleasure in beating Jesus, and while the life was leaving his body, could cast lots, could play games to see who's going to get what few personal effects Jesus had. What about the crowds who taunted Jesus to come down from the cross and save himself, who unknowingly become part of the fulfillment of many prophecies which talk about such jeering enemies who would mock the suffering servant? It's no wonder that in Acts 2 that Peter on the day of Pentecost says that by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified Jesus by the hands of wicked men. There were many wicked people involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And of course, the dark and ominous power behind all of that is Satan himself. God working through all of these evil people to achieve his purpose. I want you to just see that all through history in the Bible, God has shown this willingness to work through sinful humanity to accomplish His purposes, even as our sins grieved Him. But in the cross of Jesus, and what happened to Jesus, never did evil reach the kind of condensed focus that we see there. And I don't have to go into a whole lot of detail with this audience this morning to make the point that the cross reveals just how messy it can look when God acts to rescue His creation. There are many ugly stories in the Bible, but there is none uglier than that story. When you picture Jesus on the cross, having been beaten, having been flogged, with spikes driven through His hands, the same hands touch the ear and tongue of the deaf man. When you see the crown of thorns pressed upon his head and a grisly parody of who he actually really is, the king. When you see him struggling to take his final breaths and you see the soldier take the spear and thrust it through his side, what we see, brothers and sisters, is the God of dirty hands. Bloody hands and eventually cold and lifeless hands. That's the God who loves us and cares so much about us. And what we see in those hands of Jesus as they finally become still is the God who loves His creation so much that He actually is willing to enter into our story so that we in turn can enter into His. And the Bible says that we enter into His story by being united with Him in a way that reflects this very same event of death and burial and resurrection. That as many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, that as we're baptized with Christ, we're buried with Him into His death and raised with Him a newness of life. And we then can enter in and share His story. A story of holy and eternal love Because He has reached down to save us. This, of course, is not the only set of stories to talk about 
emphasize the hands of Jesus. There's at least one more story that places great emphasis on the hands of Jesus. It's when He presents them to the disciples that still bear the scars of His crucifixion. But they are scars, which means that it's over. And He's been healed. We all probably have some scar we could tell. I'm looking carefully here, investigating to see what I can find here. I have one right here. My bully cousin, Audra, when I was a little kid, chased me one day and I ran into the corner of a flower box, busted open my eyebrow. And what scars tell us is that there was real pain, but that that's over. It's done. And when Jesus was able to show the scars on his hands to the disciples, it said there was real pain, but it's over. And the point we need to see is that by God entering into our story, he did not just simply suffer from evil, he overcame evil. That's what those hands show. And now he invites us to his victory, to share in that victory and overcome as well.